You know, as I was uh, thoroughly enjoying the worship again this morning, I was thinking, wow, we've got, uh, I was looking up on the stage and out of the nine people up here, uh, six of them are in their early 20s or younger. And I thought, isn't that cool? I love having um, the, the people in our fellowship from every age group be able to participate in the ministry of the church. And uh, just a major, major blessing. I want to welcome you. I know some of you are visiting or uh, haven't been here for a little bit. We're glad you're back. Uh, good to see you. And for everyone else, um, boy, what a ride, huh? Just amazing what God is doing. It's, it's astonishing to me. Every week, I'm just completely blown away. Okay, Acts. We're back in the book of Acts again, and we're looking at chapter 21 as we begin uh, this new chapter. We're really at a major juncture in the book of Acts as we're shifting away from Paul's first missionary journey, second missionary journey. He's coming to the closure of his third missionary journey, and the, the balance of the book is going to be about the trials and the sufferings and the testimony of the Apostle Paul in Jerusalem and Rome. And that's going to take us to the end of the book. So this, uh, this section of scripture that we're looking at this morning uh, represents the final, the final chapter of sorts, although we've got several chapters left uh, in the book, but it's the final segment of events that are taking place in this uh, remarkable uh, book of Acts that covers a 40-year period. And so I'd like to begin by reading the text, and we'll be looking at chapter 21, beginning in verse 1, and then reading through verse 26. After we had torn ourselves away from them, and he's referring to the Ephesian elders who he's just left, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patera. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed to Syria. We landed at Tyre where our ship was to unload its cargo. Finding the disciples there, we stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. But when our time was up, we left and continued on our way. All the disciples and their wives and children accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed in Ptolemais, where we were greeted by the brothers and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. After this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Manasseh, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. When we arrived in Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so do what we tell you to. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everybody will know that there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from the food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. 
Father, we thank you. I, I can't help but think, even though we pray every Sunday of over your word, Lord, I just can't help but think of what an incredible privilege it is to hold your word in our hands, to study it, to memorize it, to meditate on it, to let it be our food and our drink. Father, I'm praying this morning as we open this particular text and consider its application to our life that you would meet us in a very powerful and wonderful and life-transforming way. God, let your word go out and accomplish the purpose for which you're sending it this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. I've entitled this message this morning, Paul, a man on a mission. There there are a few people in my life um, that I really look to that are in essence, mentors for me and heroes to me. And the men that I look to are are really marked by two qualities, and these two qualities are the things that they all share. Number one is that they have an absolute passion for an intimate fellowship with God. That's the number one thing. The the people that I admire the most and that that I look to and that I'm inspired by are people that are just driving after Christ. They just want more of him. It's not to get something done. It's not to become something. It's not to accomplish something. But they just are in love with the Lord. They love to talk about him. They love to to speak of his acts. They love to testify to his greatness. They just enjoy fellowshipping around the person of Christ. But there's another quality that I admire about people, and that's that they have a mission from God that they're unswerving on. They know what they're called to do, and it doesn't matter what anybody says as, as long as it's you know, not from God, but they just will continue to press in after God. They can't be dissuaded by friends. They can't be dissuaded by enemies. They can't be dissuaded by their emotions. They just keep pressing forward. These are people that over the long run just are steady. They keep doing the same thing. They keep showing up. They're in love with the Lord and they know their mission. And as Paul said, nothing moves them from that calling. Paul is a man like that. And yet in this text, we find some very interesting dilemmas. Because in this text, although it seems like a fairly straightforward travel log of of Luke and the disciples along with Paul going from place to place to place, there is a very difficult problem that this text actually presents to us. And this is the problem. Was Paul in the will of God when he went to Jerusalem? There are some people that say no. Great, wonderful, expository Bible teachers. I'm not talking about some strange teaching. I'm talking about very solid biblical teachers that believe Paul was outside of the will of God. And then there are others, of course, that also believe that Paul was right smack dab in the middle of God's will. And it all begins in verse four with the challenge that we have in this text because he stayed with these disciples entire for seven days. And it says in that text that through the Spirit, they urge Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. So it appears that the Holy Spirit is inspiring these people to give Paul a word not to go because it was through the Spirit that they said these words. And so we find that earlier, Paul feels compelled that God is calling him by the Spirit to go. So how do we reconcile these two apparent uh, contradictory verses and themes? Well, the best explanation for an apparent contradiction between Acts 21.4 and Acts 20.22-24 and 21.10-14 that we're looking at this morning is to let the more detailed accounts explain the more abbreviated accounts. And so what I want to suggest to you is that though both of them are possibilities, certainly we have to accept that there's a possibility that Paul went there on his own, uh, but I'm going to make a position and, uh, and a statement and make a defense for the fact that Paul is in the will of God. But let me begin by talking about the premise and the reasons why some people believe that Paul was outside the will of God. And it comes primarily from Acts 21.4 where where the people say, through the Spirit, they urge Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. For all intents and purposes, if that's the only verse we're looking at, it looks like the Holy Spirit's saying, don't go. And so they look at this verse and basically come to this uh, conclusion that Paul, the great apostle, is so passionate to get his job done and he's on such an agenda that he loses track of the intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit and ignores these words that seem to be repetitively coming to him about the dangers that are awaiting him in Jerusalem. And he's blinded by his own urgency, died prematurely, and in essence, died needlessly. He simply refused to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit through his friends. Well, 
I, I've read the arguments, and in some ways they're persuasive. But as I look at the balance of not only the arguments but also the scriptures, I'm convinced otherwise. Let me share why. The first reason is that the Lord's prophecy concerning Paul at his conversion in Acts 9, 15, and 16, this is what the Lord said to Ananias, who was to go to Paul. He says, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. That would be Jerusalem. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Paul also says in Acts 20, 22, that he's compelled by the Spirit so the Spirit is driving him very much as the Spirit of the Lord in, in Matthew 4 drove Jesus out into the desert for those, those days of temptation. The Holy Spirit was compelling, driving forcefully Paul toward Jerusalem. The other thing that, uh, that I think is worth noting is that Paul was in danger no matter where he went. Paul was always in trouble. He was just as likely to get in trouble in Jerusalem or anywhere else he went. In fact, to date in the text so far, we have four times when his life was in danger. Uh, the Jews in Damascus tried to kill him in Acts 9. The Hellenistic Jews in Jerusalem wanted to kill him in 929. He was stoned and left for dead in Lystra in Acts 14. And he and Silas were beaten and imprisoned in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. So, so avoiding Jerusalem wasn't going to solve Paul's <laughs> near, near miss, near life death experiences because he was having them all the time. It was just a common part of the ministry for the Apostle Paul. Another reason for believing that Paul was in the middle of God's will is because in Acts 23.1, when Paul is dragged before the Sanhedrin that we'll look at in the weeks to come, uh, he told the Sanhedrin that he had fulfilled his duty to God in good conscience. In other words, he had a clean conscience about his conduct and about everything he had done. If he really believed that he was outside the will of God, and, and has that happened to any of us here? <laughs> all of us, maybe, you know? Haven't we all found ourselves kind of, you know, in a pig-headed fashion, I, not to offend anybody, but, you know, where we just are determined to have our way, and after it's all said and done, we're like, oh, you know, then the consequences come and all the problems, and we're like trying to dig out, we're crying out for help, you know? And, and we're not going before God and said, I've done all these things with a clear conscience. No, we go before God and said, I blew it. I was wrong. Please rescue me, right? Isn't that how we are? Paul is saying he has a clear conscience in all his conduct up until that time in coming into Jerusalem. We also know that in Acts 23, 11, the Lord himself turns up in the night in Paul's cell and he encourages him. And this is what the Lord says to him. Take courage. Take courage, Paul. Be of good courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must all testi also testify in Rome. That's not a rebuke from the Lord. That's a commendation. That's saying, Paul, way to go. You're on track. And just as I have led you here to Jerusalem to give your testimony, so you must also go to Rome and testify there as well. Paul was in the middle of the will of God. When I think about it, I think, you know, people that want Paul out of prison and want Paul to live a very nice long life I think it's short-sighted, and I'll tell you why. Because I don't think we would have the prison epistles without Paul's imprisonment. They're called prison epistles because he wrote them there. It was in Ephesians. We've got Ephesians. We've got Colossians. We've got First and Second Timothy. Uh, we've got Philippians. We've got Titus. We've got Philemon. All of these books were written by a man that was just possessed by a passion that God put in his heart for the salvation of the lost. And he, he would not sit down long enough to write a book if he weren't imprisoned. And so the only reason we have these, these particular letters from him that are so instructive in how to, how to live for Christ and the governance of the church and how to obey him and what he wants and the mission of the church and the mission of our personal lives, they're all recorded here. Had Paul not been imprisoned, God could have done something else, but he chose this methodology to set the apostle Paul down long enough to record these precious, important words in these books. And the final thing that wouldn't have happened if Paul was not imprisoned in Jerusalem is that he would have not, wouldn't have gone to, to Rome. Had he not gone to Rome, he wouldn't have been chained to these guards that were shifting every four hours. And it says later, we're going to look and we're going to find that he's winning all these palace guards to Christ. And it had an influence on the whole household of Caesar. <laughs> People were coming to Christ. The whole Rome, Rome got turned upside down by this man's unwillingness to be moved from his calling to preach the gospel. 
he would not move. And that's what he says in, in Acts 20, 24. None of these things move me. We're gonna be talking about that this morning. And so after he hears this word from these disciples who say through the spirit, I think what happened, if I can give my own opinion on it here, it's my opinion, is that through the spirit they got the same prophecy that Paul had had at least four times already, is you're gonna suffer in Jerusalem. Never said don't go. He said prison and bonds and suffering await you in Jerusalem. Never said don't go. He said the Holy Spirit said don't go earlier when he, when he was trying to go to Asia and Paul immediately obeyed and responded and didn't, didn't go. But this time he's saying, Paul, this is what's coming. This is what's coming. And I believe through the spirit, these same, these disciples, Luke and the others, uh, and the, the disciples at Tyre loved Paul. They, he'd been on missionary journeys with them. He'd planted the church there in Tyre. And so they get this prophecy that prison and bonds and even possible death await Paul. What's their response? Don't go. So they get the word of the Lord and then they give their own opinion and say, Paul, don't do it. They urged him not to go on to Rome. But we find the next verse is that it just says Paul and his men left and continued on their journey. <laughs> just like, thank you very much. I appreciate the, the words of, of encouragement there. Uh, but Paul understood that these prophecies were intended to prepare him, not to stop him from going on his quest to Jerusalem. We're told that he stayed with the brothers in Ptolemies. And, uh, you know, I, one of the things that really struck me is the, is the hospitality of the body of Christ. That Paul and the disciples, this entourage of guys, we don't know exactly how many there are, but there's maybe a, a half a dozen, a dozen guys that are traveling. And they're just going from church to church to church, blessing, praying for, encouraging, strengthening the fellowships as they go along. And, and they're warmly received in each place. And I thought, you know, isn't that the way the body of Christ is? You know, we have visitors that come here from the mainland and they're, they're just so touched and blown away by the love of you guys. Just the embracing. I mean, people that just come here once in a lifetime are treated with as much love as people that are regulars here. We just, we love the body of Christ. And you are evidencing that. And, and that's what Paul and the disciples are experiencing. And I want to tell you, you can't find that anywhere else on the planet except in the church. There isn't a place like that where you can go anywhere and immediately be a part of an extended family, except in the body of Christ. And so Paul and the disciples are experiencing that. And it's just a wonderful, I just can't imagine. It must be just a, you know, it's a lot of packing and unpacking and packing and unpacking. But along the way, it's these precious uh, relationships that are being nurtured and encouragement that God gives. And he does the same with us today. We're told that he stayed in, uh, in verse 8 in the house of Philip of Caesarea. Philip was, um, by the way, a spirit-filled believer based on Acts chapter six, a man of wisdom, a man full of God's grace and power, a man anointed to do great wonders and miraculous signs, and according to Acts 8, 5, a preacher and teacher of God's word. The text tells us that he's an evangelist. This guy's just passionate, man. He's just like, I don't wanna make a point here just for a minute, because in, this, uh, in the book of Acts, we find that that it was uh, Philip that evangelized Samaria and did miraculous wonders and had a huge impact in, in the Samaritan community coming to Christ. He's also the one that witnessed to the Ethiopian eunuch, remember, and then was snatched away and then ended up in Zotas. You know, it was just like amazing. This guy was a part of some really exciting, crazy early church stuff. It was really amazing that this guy was living this way, but it was because he was available to do the work of the ministry. And he's also, before he finally landed in Caesarea and settled down there and was a part of the church, the Bible says that he evangelized the entire area around Caesarea. Town after town after town heard the gospel because of Philip's faithful witness. And I want to share something with you that not all of us are called to be evangelists. An evangelist is someone that's actually been gifted by the Holy Spirit. And wherever they go, they're just, you know, just fruit, 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 fruit. Everybody responds. Not everyone is an evangelist, but every one of us is commissioned to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And not sometimes, but wherever we go, wherever we are, in our neighborhoods, at the store, at our workplace, in, at the soccer fields, when we're playing basketball, when we're out in the surf lineup, wherever we are, the Bible says that we are to give witness. I don't consider myself an evangelist by any stretch, but I try to witness everywhere I go. 
And I do see fruit, but I'm not, I'm not the kind of guy that, you know, that nobody's going to hire me to, to uh, have a big revival somewhere uh, because that's not my gifting. I have other giftings, but I still am obligated and privileged to be able to share the Lord with people. Philip was a man like that. And all I can tell you is that Philip was a man that just saw the power of God in his life and the fruit of the Spirit because he was obedient to the call as an evangelist. We're also told that even before his evangelistic uh, um, uh, fruit began to show, that he was one of the seven. He was one of the seven chosen deacons in Acts chapter one, uh, verses one through seven that were chosen to meet the needs of the church as they were struggling to, uh, the disciples were struggling to concentrate on preaching and prayer. He also had four unmarried daughters who prophesied Prophesying is just basically foretelling or forthtelling the word of God. And I'm thinking, you know, it's just interesting. We've actually got quite a few uh, occasions in the Bible where we have prophetesses. Uh, we have Miriam, the sister of Aaron in Exodus chapter 15. There's Deborah, one of the great judges of Israel, Judges chapter four. We have Huldah who lived during the reign of Josiah and helped him turn that country around in 2 Kings chapter 22. And then we have Anna who was in the temple and prophesied over young baby Jesus, young, the young boy Jesus when he was in the temple. And uh, that's in Luke chapter two. And as I thought about the, the powerful role that women have in the Bible, I think about the gals in our church. And I, and I wanna take just a moment to commend the ladies in this fellowship. I am so, yeah. I'm so blessed and this church is so enriched by the godliness and the perseverance and the maturity of the women in this church. I hear it all the time and my wife does too. People come from the outside, people from other parts of the island, people from other islands and they're, they're struck by the maturity of the women in this church their grasp of scripture, their, their godly character, and it's, and it's causing people to take notice. And I wanna thank you, ladies, because that doesn't happen by itself. It's not accidental. Uh, it, it doesn't happen without some perseverance, some love for the Lord, a willingness to submit yourself to the instruction of the Holy Spirit and the, and the fellowship of the saints as you get together with the women's group. I wanna commend you. Uh, this church is a church that is blessed by your leadership, by your courage, by your modeling, and by your example. It's not a, a, a woman-led church. It's a, it's, a, it's a church that's led biblically and appropriately by the husbands and by the, by the men of the fellowship. And it's so, but at the same time, I wanna emphasize again that your role here is phenomenal. We're all partnering together. And it's just a beautiful thing that God has done. This isn't a church that's, that's led by women. And it's not a church that, that's led by men where the women can't serve. This is a church by God's grace where the men are leading under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the women are partnering and we're all working together using our gifts. And so I just wanna thank the ladies here. You are doing a fabulous job and making a significant impact on this island for the gospel of Jesus Christ because of your obedience to the Lord. While they're there in Caesarea, a man in uh, verse 10 named Agabus comes down from Judea, which is about a 60-mile journey. He's also described as a prophet. He actually, in Acts chapter 11, was the one that predicted this great famine that would, that would cover the entire Roman Empire, and his prophecy came to pass. And he came to Paul at some sort of a gathering that they had, maybe a time of fellowship or Bible study. And, uh, and of course, Paul knew who Agabus was, and he came into the meeting and said, Paul, give me your belt. My belt? What do you want my belt for? just give me the belt. I have something I need to show you. And so Agabus takes Paul's belt. I am imagining he sits down on the ground, ties up his feet, and ties up his hands. And he says, basically, thus saith the Lord. The Holy Spirit is saying that the man who owns this belt, his hands and his feet will be tied in Jerusalem. He will be bound and taken prisoner. Notice he doesn't say, don't go. He says, the Holy Spirit says that these things will happen to the man that owns this belt in Jerusalem. That's the Holy Spirit again, the confirmation that Paul is tracking and doing the right thing. Now you can imagine how people who were already distressed about all the prophecies about Paul, they just came from Tyre where the people said, don't go. Everyone that was there said, don't go. Why would they, why would they try to stop Paul and actually be a distraction and a hindrance to his ministry and the calling that God had in his life. Why could they, what could they possibly be thinking? 
Well, they're thinking just like you would think and just like I would think. If I had a close friend, an associate, and, and by the Holy Spirit said, this person is basically going to be in prison and die if, you know, on, and going on this trip. I'm like, well, then don't go. Let's have you do something else. Why waste your life? That possibly that can't be productive. It would be so much better if you simply didn't do that and then did something else. Why die needlessly? Wouldn't that be how you would feel? Honestly. Would you say to the person they got this prophecy, praise the Lord, you know, it's like, isn't that exciting? God has got a mission for you. Oh, bonds and suffering await you, Paul. You know, no, that's not, that's not how a true friend would react. And so they're, they're responding out of their emotion. They're responding out of their love for Paul. They love this guy. He's, he's, he's had an impact on all of the, of Asia Minor and now going to have an impact on Rome. All of Israel and Jerusalem has been impacted by his life. He, he's the forerunner of so much that would follow in terms of the reaching of the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They didn't want him to die. It's the same reason when Jesus spoke to the disciples in, in Matthew 16 and told him, he says, you know, I, I need to let you guys know I'm going to Jerusalem. What? They tried to kill you the last time you went there. This is their response. Why do you want to go there? And he says, because I'm going to be bound there. I'm going to be put on trial there. I'm going to suffer there. And I'm going to die there. Well, what do we expect the disciples to say? Hallelujah? No, they try to stop him. And what does Peter say, the spokesman for the group? These things will never happen to you. And in parentheses, because I won't let them happen to you. Big Peter, you know, he's going to stop. You know, he's going he's to get in the way of God's entire plan. Poor Peter just got completely rolled over, you know. That's what happens when we get in God's way and try to adjust the plan is he just moves on, you know. He's just going to get it done anyway. But Peter says, may these things never be. You know, Peter, with all of the, the best of intent, actually opposing the work of God. And what did Jesus have to say to him? Oh, what a stinging rebuke. Get behind me, Satan. Wow. You know, the thing I want to tell you is I don't think, as I look at the text of Scripture in the book of Acts, I don't find one person that's coming into the group of people that are all saying, Paul, don't go, don't go. I don't hear one, one of them saying, you know what, brothers, Paul's received a word from the Lord. Let's not discourage the brother. Let's pray for him. Nobody's doing that. How many people stood up and the disciples when Jesus pronounced that he was going to go to Jerusalem, suffer and die, be buried and raised on the third day? How many of the disciples stood up and said, wait a second, guys, I think Jesus is onto something here. I've been studying the Old Testament. I think this is what we've been waiting for. No, every one of them was grieved and was sorrowful and was trying to get Jesus to turn away from this plan. They were motivated by love, but they were motivated in error. You know, there's actually quite a few examples in history of the same dilemma. I think about Polycarp. Polycarp in, in uh, 162 AD was the bishop of Smyrna. Smyrna was one of the churches in the, uh, in the seven churches in the book of Revelation, chapter two and three. And, um, and Smyrna was a church that was commended in many ways, but it was also a church that was absolutely crushed by persecution. And Polycarp was the pastor there. He was the bishop of, of, uh, of that church in Smyrna. And uh, Polycarp was threatened, his life was threatened during one of the cleansings of sorts of the Christian church uh, by Judaism, and they were trying to kill him. And, and there was word of it by, from his friends, and all of his friends came to Polycarp and said, Polycarp, get out of town, you know, get out of Dodge. You don't need to die. This is a waste of a life. Why would you die, Polycarp? And Polycarp just refused, and he would not be moved he said, I will not leave the flock. I'm paraphrasing, but he says, I will not leave the calling. I will not run. I will not leave the church. History tells us that as the proconsul brought him out into the town square and tied him up to the stake, he said to Polycarp one last time, swear, Polycarp, and I will release thee. Reproach Christ. In other words, deny the Lord. And Polycarp answered and he said, 80 and six years have I served him and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who hath saved me? And he was promptly set on fire. You know, Polycarp was a man 
with a mission. He was a man that would not be moved. Even his own friends could not move him from the calling that he had. I think about Martin Luther, Martin Luther at the uh, Diet of Worms. Last night, I had a few German people come up to me and say, it's not worms, diet of worms. It's not some sort of a fad new diet, although I think it would be very effective if, if you could get people to actually have a diet of worms. Uh, but it's the Diet of Worms. And it's actually um, in Germany. And in, the 15, in 1521, Martin Luther, who previously had been a part of the Catholic Church, uh, was brought before the Holy Roman Empire, and the Diet, or Diet as it looks like in English, is actually a parliamentary gathering. And they gathered for the purpose of putting Martin Luther on trial to defend his position that salvation was based on faith alone in Christ and not by works, which is the Catholic Church preached that it was faith plus works. And Martin Luther said no. And he said, sola scriptura. In other words, the, the Bible is the basis and foundation of all our decision-making process. Not any man, not anyone else. Sola fide, by faith alone. Sola scriptura, by scripture alone. And he was put on trial. Just before this time, uh, a man named John Huss was burned at the stake for his reformation position, his desire to reform the Catholic Church. And so Luther's friends comforted him, but then earnestly urged him to not go to Worms, Germany, for this diet, for this parliamentary trial. This is Luther's response. Though Huss was burned, the truth was not burned, and Christ still lives. Then he sent this message to his friends. I shall go to Worms, though there are as, are as many devils as there are tiles on the roofs. I want to read something else in, in addition that, um, from a devotional that has this information in it. And this is what his final answer was when they gave him one last chance to recant his position that began the Protestant Reformation. He says, unless I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by clear reason, for I trust neither the Pope nor council alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have cited, for my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since to act against one's conscience is neither safe nor right. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. And he was martyred. I think about uh, a young man named Jim Elliott, who in 1956, after graduating from uh, Wheaton College, had it on his heart to go to Ecuador, to the Alca Indians, this uh, man-eating, just terrible, bloodthirsty tribe. And he was called by God. Everybody thought, Jim, you're an idiot. You know, the guy was class president. He was top in his class. He was an extraordinary athlete. Even his town where he came from in Oregon was just like, what is a guy thinking, you know? Let somebody that doesn't have any skill go be a missionary. But, but Jim, think what God could do with you here in the United States. He's eloquent, he's passionate, he loves the Lord. Jim, stay here, all his friends said, his family, his counselors. And this is what he wrote in his journal as he struggled with these issues. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. These are powerful, powerful words from a man that would not be moved, a man that had a mission. And you can read about his life in a, two books, Through Gates of Splendor and The End of the Spear. And now, interestingly, as he made contact in 1956 with these Alka Indians for the first time, he and the entire group were slaughtered by the river where their plane had landed. Didn't even get to share the gospel with them. Seems like a waste, doesn't it? Except that because of his model and example, the mission field was flooded by young men and women that were stepping up to take his place. Thousands and thousands of men and women that would not otherwise have gone on the mission field were inspired, just like I'm inspired, just like any godly person would be inspired by the love for the Lord and by the passion for carrying out this commission. His own wife, Elizabeth Elliot, many of you are familiar with her books and her writings, but she herself, in obedience to the word of God and to the spirit of God, went right back to the Alka Indians, to the very tribe that slaughtered her husband and his friends, and they went back and began to do ministry. 
The entire tribe was one. The very men who killed her husband repented and came to know Jesus Christ because of her phenomenal modeling and example. That entire tribe came to Christ. The leaders of that tribe who were the murderers are now the pastors of the church of the Alca Indians in Ecuador because one man was unwilling to say, I will go, I will not be deterred, I will not be dissuaded, I have a calling on my life. And so Jim Elliott went. It looks like a waste from a human standpoint. But a man or a woman will never waste their life when they give it for the kingdom of God and to his purposes. And Jim Elliott was a man on a mission. He was a man that said, these things will not move me. Christian history is filled with men and women like this. And I want to share something with you. I see that in you. I see a little smidgen of it in me. <laughs> I'm growing. But I see it in the work you're doing. I see it in your service. I see it in your desire to grow. I see it in your willingness to hang in there through some difficult things. I see it when you stay in a difficult marriage. I see it when you don't give up on a friend who's fallen into sin. I see it when you reject sexual immorality and, and remain pure before the Lord. I see it when you do what's right when everyone around you is saying do what's wrong. I see it in your love for Christ. And I see it in your passion for the mission that God has given you to do. And you inspire me. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 16.9 that the eyes of the Lord are ranging throughout the earth looking to support those whose hearts are fully devoted to him. Fully devoted. People on a mission from God. Well, in verse 13, Paul, as he hears these people trying to dissuade him, he says, you're grieving me. He was grieved and he was unwavering in his determination and he said, I'm ready to be bound, I'm ready to die. I'm ready to do whatever it takes to do God's will. And so it says in verses uh, 14 through 16 that the disciples and the other people basically gave up. They just surrendered. It really reminds me of, um, of Ruth and Naomi. You remember the story in the book of Ruth? And uh, Naomi's husband dies, her two sons die. One of those sons is, is uh, Ruth's husband. And Naomi says, just go off home. You know, I, I'm like cursed. Don't even get near me. I, I want you to have a new life. And Ruth says, no. Your God will be my God, your people, my people. Wherever you go, I will go. That's it. And the Bible says that after Naomi did everything she could to try to dissuade Ruth, she gave up, gave in, and let Ruth come. And we know the, the balance of that story. What a miracle story that was, wasn't it? Because this young lady, Ruth, would not be deterred and would not give up and would not be derailed from the calling that God had on her life. And so these disciples, they committed Paul to God's will. And again, I, I just so many scriptures are coming to mind. I'm thinking about Matthew chapter 26, where Jesus himself is in the Garden of Gethsemane. What's he praying? He said, Lord, if there's any way, <laughs> if there's another way that the world can be saved, let this, pass, let this cup pass from me. But then at the end, what did he say? But not my will, but thine be done. And in essence, that's where this entire group comes to. They hear all these prophecies. They realize Paul is headed for trouble. Paul is ready for it. The Holy Spirit has prepared him for it. But they don't want it to happen. But they finally give up, and then they finally say, not our will, but thine be done. And so they accompanied him and, um, and saw him off. Now, I'm going to go through the balance of this text quite quickly. In verse 17, we find that the brothers uh, received Paul and his men in Jerusalem warmly, and then they immediately met with James and the elders and gave this great glowing report about what, was, what God was doing among the Gentiles through Paul's ministry. By the way, this is the second report because after the first missionary journey in Acts 15, Paul also came and gave a report, and it just blew him away. And now he's coming back again with more fruit and more stories and more testimony about the greatness of God, and all the elders praised God, and then they began to say to Paul, after they praised the Lord, they said, Paul, we need to talk to you about something really serious that's going on in Jerusalem. You need to know about this right away because you're gonna have to face this. And he said they identified these accusations that were against Paul. Uh, number one, they were saying, Jews were saying in Jerusalem that Paul was teaching people to, uh, to turn away from Moses and more specifically to not circumcise 
their sons. And in both of these cases, uh, they were absolutely wrong. It was the same accusation they leveled at uh, Stephen in the book of Acts chapter 6. Paul never told people to abandon Moses, and he never told them to stop circumcising their sons. He did, however, clearly teach that anyone who depended on these Jewish traditions for salvation would forfeit the gift of eternal life that is received by faith alone. Paul practiced Judaism, but his salvation was based on faith. He went to the feasts and the festivals. In fact, that's why he's trying to get to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. He wasn't repudiating the law. He wasn't repudiating the traditions. He was saying to the Jews, these traditions, these laws all point to Christ. He is the fulfillment of all of it. And now that he has fulfilled it, we are free to simply worship God. That's the purpose of the law, to make us conscious of sin, to make the whole world accountable before God, to cause us every mouth to be silenced before God, and finally, Galatians 3, to lead us to Christ, that you finally get so exhausted of trying to do it on your own that you finally just give up. Has anybody been through that process, by the way, whereas even as a Christian, you try really hard to be a good boy, <laughs> a good girl? I've done that. I, for the first probably five years of my Christian life at least, probably longer, I just brought in you know, my, the same pattern of, of self-discipline that I had before I became a Christian into my Christian life and thought, I just okay, give me the program, tell me what I need to do, and I'm gonna hop too, you know, and I'll get it, and I'll keep working at it, and, and I'll, I'll get my life cleaned up. All to the praise of God, of course, you see? But here's the problem with trying to accomplish in our own strength what only God can do is that number one, it can't be done. <laughs> and uh, if you haven't discovered that yet, you will. I hope sooner rather than later where you finally come to the end of yourself and say, I can't do this. Good, good conclusion. But God can. What's impossible with man is possible with God. But the other reason I have to honestly confess is the reason why I wanted to have a piece of it is because I wanted a piece of the glory. I wasn't even thinking of it clearly, but the reality is, in retrospect, I wanted some of that. You know, I wanted to say, yep. I mean, with the help of God, of course, I did it. I mean, he did, we did it. We did it. Yeah. Are you following me? And God says, no, no, no. It has to be all me. I'm going to not share my glory with anyone. And so when I finally came to the end of myself, which, boy, God had to hit me with a brick and a stone and, and a, a wall and a house and everything else, and it landed on me, and finally I got the message, I can't do anything apart from Christ. I never believed that until the world caved in. And then I believed it. And hopefully uh, I'm functioning in that more and more as I understand those things that God has taught me in the past. But Paul is not repudiating the law. He is saying that Christ is the fulfillment. Everything that we could not do that the law demands, Jesus did on the cross. And here's the wonderful story of the gospel is that if you believe that message, you are free. You are accepted in the beloved. You are righteous in the sight of God because you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You don't have to prove anything. You don't have to become somebody. You don't have to try to win his approval or favor. You already have those things. And now, as it says in Romans 12, 1, that you've received these mercies, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him, which is your spiritual act of worship. So we serve not to get God's approval. We serve because of God's approval. Because of the mercies of God, we want to live our life for the mission of Christ. And so Paul understood that distinction. While they suggested a very interesting course of action to Paul, there were four men that had made a vow, a Nazarite vow, that's taken from uh, Numbers chapter six, verses one through 21. I've taught on that before uh, when we taught on Acts 18, so I won't belabor the Nazarite vow again, except to say that they had to cut their hair. Uh, they had to abstain from wine, anything from the vine. Uh, they had to make an offering of three animals, a goat, uh, a ram, and a ewe lamb, and they also had quite a few other sacrifices and offerings that needed to be made even monetarily at the end of that. Usually it was a 30-day period and that they would shave their head again and they would present the hair and burn it on the altar as an offering to the Lord. And it was a Nazarite vow. It was a, it was a, a vow of commitment, a, a vow of sanctification, a, a vow of separating themselves unto, unto the ministry of the Lord. And so they said to Paul, why don't you join these guys and pay their expenses and then everyone will know that you haven't repudiated the law or Moses. And so 
uh, you know, this is one of those times where Paul could have said, no, 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 no. You're not dragging me into the law again. But he said, I can do that. That's not a problem. Why? 1 Corinthians 9.20. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. So as to win those under the law. Paul was like, yeah, no problem. I'll take care of that. So he purified himself along with these men and paid their expenses. Quite a, quite a bill at the end of the day when you're paying for four guys plus you, three animals each, and all the offerings that were required at the end of the day. Paul did it all. This brings us to the end of this text that we're looking at this morning. And I stopped here because from this point on, it's just like all hell breaks loose. And so I want to take a little rest before we dive into the fray uh, uh, next week. But I want to close by, by kind of bringing this all home and around to us on a personal level. I guess the first thing I want to say is the gospel came, has come to us, has come to us as a congregation, has come to you in, individually because someone somewhere in time refused to back off, refused to be derailed from their mission and from their calling. This is a person that said, when the enemy said, you're an idiot, don't share the gospel. When they thought to themselves, they're gonna make fun of me, don't share the gospel. When their friends ridiculed them and said, you know, I can't believe you're still talking this stuff about Jesus. They wouldn't listen. They were men like Paul and women like Paul that said, none of these things move me. You are a product of men and women like that. That's the only reason you're here. It's the grace of God, of course. God can do anything he want, wants, but he used men and women and young people to share. And someone in your life was courageous enough to share with you the life-transforming message of Jesus Christ. The first thing I want to say is call that person up if they're still alive and available and thank them because they did something that was very courageous and something very difficult and your words of encouragement will mean the world to them. The second thing that's part of the same package is I believe God wants you to be a man or woman like that. That in spite of all the little whisperings of the enemy and in spite of what you think is disqualification, in spite of the fact that you don't know that much of the Bible, you know, you can't answer every question, you know, that some unbeliever might have, that God has still called you. And he says, preach my gospel. Share the good news of Jesus Christ. Let nothing move you because that's God's plan that we would win the lost. The second thing I wanna, I wanna bring to your attention as a possible application from this text is that sometimes the, with the best of intentions, our friends can give us bad advice. I hear about Christians telling their friends to leave their spouse because they're not happy anymore. You know, they're so grieved that their girlfriend or so grieved that their, that their friend that they go surfing with a guy is so unhappy over such a long period of time that all their friends say, you know what, just leave the creep. Leave him. God wants you to be happy. That's all over the Bible, isn't it? Doesn't God want us to be happy? Are you happy? No, you're not happy. Well, then do something, you know, meaning leave. I've seen people do the same thing when it comes to drugs and alcohol. I've seen the same thing when it comes to uh, keeping ethical business practices. I mean, you fill in the blank, sexual immorality, all these things. I deserve it. I deserve this. I, I, I've worked so hard. I've done this. I've done that. I've, I need something back. I'm going to just have to take it. And what I want to tell you is that when your friends come to you with those messages, you will have to be like Paul and say, these things do not move me. I can do nothing else except stand on the word of God. So if you want to know God's will, be very, very careful about believing that the will of God comes strictly through friends because sometimes even with the best motives, they can give you bad advice. I don't want to spend much time on it, but I do want to go over five steps to discovering God's will. Number one, be a student of the Bible. Know the Bible. That's the premier method by which God guides us. Secondly, seek God in prayer. And I'm not talking about some little, I call them puffball prayers, you know, those little poof, you know, it's over, you know, it's like, and then we get busy and try to work out our problems. I'm talking about extended prayer. I'm talking about prayer and fasting, serious prayer, really crying out to God, not letting go until he guides us. And then get God godly counsel. Don't get counsel from people who are walking in ungodliness themselves. What do you expect to get? You're gonna get ungodly counsel. 
Go to the most godly people that you know, even though you know they're gonna tell you stuff you don't wanna hear. Don't go to somebody that's gonna tell you what you wanna hear. Go to somebody that's gonna tell you what God says and stay with that. Fourthly, consider providential circumstances. God does work through circumstances. He divinely orchestrates our lives. Consider those things. And then finally, be led by the Holy Spirit. And by the way, the Holy Spirit will never lead you to do something that's contrary to the word of God. I look at the text of scripture and I see Jesus. This guy was a man on a mission. But he shared these qualities that I admire about others. He was totally given to the purposes of God. Jesus' first and foremost priority was the Father and relationship with him. Secondarily, it was the mission of seeking and saving that which was lost. Paul, a man on a mission. First and foremost, a man totally in love with God, totally inspired by him, totally passionate about him, totally devoted to him. Secondarily, had the desire to preach where Christ had not been preached and to win the Gentiles. Polycarp, a man on a mission. Martin Luther, a man on a mission. Jim Elliot, a man on a mission. Men and women throughout history in love with Jesus. Called to do as well. Changing the world. And today God is calling us. I don't know how long before the Lord comes. I don't think it's going to be long personally. But should he tarry, will the next generation on this island have a godly heritage of men and women, us, that are totally in love with the Lord and totally committed to the mission? Seeking and saving that which is lost, preaching the gospel, making disciples, steady, consistent, persevering, until our Lord comes, finishing our race, running with endurance, running to win, until we receive that prize of the crown of life that's promised to those that love the Lord. I want to be a man like that in the worst way. I need you to pray for me. I desperately need you to pray for me. I trust that you want to be men and women like that. Only by God's power. We can't do it. What's impossible with us is possible with God, however, and he's looking now scanning even this small group of people and he's saying, where is the man, where is the woman whose heart is totally devoted to me? Let's be people like that this week. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your help. God, I so desperately needed your help today. I thank you for helping me to share your word. And I pray, God, that you would take this word and you would use it for your glory you would advance your cause and you would raise up the saints that are in this building, under this tent, God, to do valiant, noble, courageous deeds in your behalf. Father, let us fall in love with you all over again and God, may we be about your work until the coming of your kingdom. We look forward to it. Can't hardly wait, Lord, just can't wait. So eager, so excited about its coming. But in the meantime, God, we have work to do. Let us be busy about your kingdom, doing your will, until we hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master's happiness. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.